Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Hello, hello, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You show. We're coming here um, live from snowy, beautiful Maine uh, with a special Friday show. Usually we do do our shows on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but we've got a Friday show here, and we're going to add awesome attorneys to our list of guests because we have one with us for probably a half hour, hour. We don't know how we're, how long we're going to go here today, but um, Sean Weisbart is here. Um, did I say that right, Sean? <laughs> we talked about you it. You got it, Elizabeth. I got it. <laughs> the destroyer of last names got one right. <laughs> um, Sean is from Blank Rome and um, a New York attorney. And um, your practice includes the areas of trust and estates law and tax exempt organizations. And um, there's a lot about you here. You serve as an, uh, an adjunct professor of law at both New York University School of Law, where you teach income taxation of trusts and estates, and then also at Fordham, um, where you teach trust, trusts and estates drafting. I hope I'm getting this all right. Um, Perfect. And then, yeah, and then you serve on a, on a variety of philanthropic organizations on the boards of several such as men I want to say this right mentor did I say it right or BKB That's foundation That's right mentor the mentor, <laughs> mentor BKB foundation Awesome and um you're the chair of Next Gen Trusts and Estates Committee um at the is it UJA Federation of New York Did I get that right Exactly Awesome. Okay, we're we're doing well. Um, and you earned your um, law degree from Fordham University School of Law, and then um, LLM from New York University School of Law. So welcome. Is LLM Thanks right? Thanks so much. It's really <laughs> great to be right here. <laughs> LLM is right. It's it's uh, sort of if one law degree wasn't enough, I decided to go back uh, for a Thank second you. one that specializes just in tax law. And uh, wow. it was it was just a really wonderful experience. <laughs> so getting a second lottery, only fun. taking tax classes. I had lots to talk about at cocktail parties for sure. <laughs> I'm married to an attorney, and he says, you know, law school sort of sort of made it so I can't free have a time free reading anymore. It made it so he just got so sick of reading for the longest time. Um, I don't know if you have that at all, but he said that was a ton of reading. Yes, no. It was a ton so. of reading, but I, I think, you know, the one thing of, you know, being married to a non-attorney is the non-attorney spouse always inevitably tells the attorney spouse they're speaking to them like a lawyer. I don't know if you experienced that. <laughs> but that's what me and yeah. my lawyer friends always say. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I say for, our... <laughs> for all the lawyers out there, the uh, the response back is that, that you're only telling me that because that's, a, that's an easy thing to say uh, to get out of an argument. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. But um, you know, they it's it's all good. You just got married. We got to talk about that. Yes, for I just a got married. We... October 19th. Super exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. I have a great um, wife. And her name? Can we say her it name on is there? Sky. Yes, her yeah. name is Sky Ostriker, now Sky Weisbart. 
awesome. Hi, Sky. <laughs> and um, oh, there's, hopefully there, she's listening. Yeah, I hope so, too. But we put a picture of you guys up with the show um, for fun. I don't know where you are exactly in that picture, but um, it's it's a it's a beautiful picture of you both. So congratulations on that and your honeymoon thank you. and all that good stuff. Thank you. And thank you for, Thanks so for much, being Elizabeth. with us. Yeah. So of things course. change. Things change when you get married, when you have family, when you have aging parents, all of these different things. Um do you want to talk about some of the important things about um, maybe like I'm trying to segue like into wills a little bit, you know, because stuff changes once you have kids, married, even if you're not, right? Everybody should probably have Absolutely. a will, Absolutely. Right? You know, everyone should have a will for the most important reason that you get to control where your property goes when you die. That's sort of a morbid subject for really anyone at any age to think about it. But if you don't have a will, you're faced with a situation where the state law for the state in which you reside is going to get to control where your property goes. So if someone doesn't have a will and they die with a bunch of property, whatever the law says in in that state, and that's something called intestate distribution. So every state has a statute that addresses what happens to the property of someone if they die without a will. It could go to their parents. It could go to their children. It could go to their spouse to distant cousins, especially for single people, um, the, the state law might result in something that's completely uh, counter to what they'd like because single people, they don't have a spouse, they don't have kids, their parents may be deceased, and so the property may go among you know, their seven cousins spread across the world who they've never seen. So ev- everyone should have a will uh, just to dispose of their property. There are also a couple of other reasons. First, you could select who gets to control and transfer your property at, at your death. That's usually called an executor in most states. Um, additionally, for people that have kids, it's very important to appoint a guardian in case the, the person who's creating the will and their spouse both die unexpectedly while the child is a minor. That way they can guarantee and have peace of mind that someone is appointed to take care of their children in that highly unlikely situation. Tons of other reasons to have a will, but those are usually for, for most people, big enough selling points to start thinking about it. Yeah, we we um, have a will and and drafted a will many many years ago, and I, that was the most like oddest, uncomfortable decision making. You know, things you're like th- trying not to think about it, but you have to. I can't. It's a just a really uncomfortable thing to explain when you're like, yeah, and in case we both die, you know, so and so. Has, you know, all four kids go to that. You know, it's like, oh man, that is just a brutal conversation. It's, it's so yeah. true. And I'll tell you, when there, every now oh. and then someone comes in to sign their will and they're so uncomfortable, I feel like I yeah. ought to just keep a bottle of whiskey um, in my office so I could <laughs> give it to them. But yeah. I can't give it to them while they're signing the will because I have to make sure they have capacity at the time, a time yeah. they're signing. So that would be a big no-no. But it's so true. Many people, yeah. it just, it, it's an uncomfortable subject to think about what's going to happen when you're no longer around, but we try to be sensitive to people. And for some people, it gives them peace of mind that they can, you know, move on from the subject and know that it's at least addressed and they never have to think about it again. What about the person listening who's like, I don't need that. I'm single. I rent. I don't have kids. And, um, but I do have a huge savings, but they don't have a will. I think it's actually even more important for a single person to be aware of what happens if they don't have a will than a married couple. Because as I was mentioning just before, 
if you die without a will, the law of your state governs as to what happens to your property. And so for that single person, it's probably going to go to siblings or cousins, nephews, nieces, etc. And that oftentimes may not be what they want, or it might not be in the equal shares, you know, going to the, the seven cousins in equal shares that the single person wants. So for single people especially, the law doesn't usually get it right. I mean, for a nuclear family, if half goes to the spouse and half goes to the kids, that's something that that person can more likely tolerate. But for single people, it's actually even more important that they have a will for that reason. What about um, debt? Like, let's say um, somebody dies and they have, you know, student loan debt and Forty thousand. I'm just picking arbitrary numbers here, but forty thousand sure. dollars in credit card debt. Does the debt get to divide up equally among family members? Like here you go. Or what? What happens to the debt? Well, you know, you can't sort of really say this per- this person has to pay my debt. I mean, essentially, <laughs> what happens is your creditors, right? They get the first stab at your property, and then whatever's left after those creditors are paid off gets distributed in accordance with the will. Um, And then we got into sort of intricate rules. If you make a gift of a specific amount to someone um, and then you give the balance to someone else, if there's only – after you've paid off all those creditors, your Amex bill that you owed a lot of money for, you lived a big life, if afterwards there's only enough to pay off the person who received that specific dollar amount, the person who, who the will says gets everything else, they usually get shafted and get nothing. So it's really important when you're preparing your will that you're really aware of the size of your assets because there are these ordering rules for, for who gets what. But generally speaking, if you have debts, those creditors get paid off first if they come forward. Yeah. What about if you're what about if you're that like single person with debt with no house, no you know, whatever, and there's just like debt? Then then what happens to you? Well Do if there's no if, you know, if you don't yeah. have assets to cover the debt, those those creditors are out of luck. Okay, that's what I was asking. And like that's if they true do, whether if you they have would. a will. Yeah, no, they can't go after they can't go after your your cousins who would inherit your property if you didn't have a will for for that debt. The creditors yeah. are then out of luck. Yeah, but even questions? for people with you know no assets, it's still important to have a will. Especially this is so true for younger people because we all live on social media. Um, you can actually control who can get access to your social media accounts under your will. And this is the law in almost all states. Um, And if you don't actually, yeah, it's such a fascinating uh, issue. And this, uh, if I can tell a quick little story, that this is a true case that really started around the Iraq war, where someone was was killed during the war. And they had, I think it was a Facebook account, or or maybe it was an email account, that sort of dialogued uh, their their history and their, their story being in the war. And after they died, um, their family wanted to, you know, access this journal. And I think it was Yahoo. They said you can't because it's it's his personal stuff, and you don't have access. It's almost it really had to do at the time with like computer privacy laws, or you know, you can't go into someone's computer, and so even if they die, you still can't go into their computer. And so, you know, in the intervening, you know, 15 years, as people, you know, are, are living their lives online. These are valuable assets, someone's, someone's collections of photos and whatnot. And so states developed laws about giving access um, to social media accounts and other what, what we call digital assets after someone mm-hmm. dies. And there's a whole series of, of rules that determine who can access that and, and how you go about granting that access. 
that's really interesting. So like if you own a, like let's say best ever you, if I own best, you know, I own best ever you and many other domains and things like that, those are digital assets, right? So do those Certainly now they need are. to be listed in a, in a well, like who, where this goes? Yeah, you would, you should. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to depend on, on the state law in which you reside, but for right. digital assets, um, yeah, you want to make sure you're being very, very clear about disposing of those rights to, the digi- to those digital assets. I think your radio network might be a, a combination of a digital asset along with intellectual property. So that's yeah. a little bit different than just a pure digital asset, but it's something absolutely for a unique asset, even more, all the more reason to be very careful and have a will and, and make sure the person you want to, to receive that asset um, is actually going to be able to do so. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah, the, I own the words "best ever you." Those are trademarked by me, <clears throat> so it's it's been interesting to learn about that over the years. So, it, it, there's things that you don't think about that could could be or should be in a will that I probably didn't even think about before, and I bet a lot of people don't, or maybe they, maybe they do, and I just didn't think about it. I don't know, but um, yeah, there's a lot of things there. But I think what what about um, I noticed like on Facebook. When you pass away, um, like my our, my dad just passed away a year ago, and they're like, "Would you like to set this to like a memorial type of an account?" That's a heart wrenching thing to have to do too. Right. So Facebook is a great, yeah. Facebook is a great example. This is speaking from someone that doesn't have Facebook but knows uh, about it because it's the perfect example for digital assets. Um, Facebook has something that's called, I think, a legacy tool or an online tool yes. that allows you during your life to grant access to someone um, who could access that account um, after you pass away. And so the law for most states in terms of access to digital assets is that the first priority of who can access um, your digital asset is based on what, what the law calls this online tool. And so I believe Facebook allows someone to create that during their life. That governs even if you have a contrary um, direction in your will. So it's really, really interesting and important to know these rules because someone might, when they're 25 or in college, set up this you know, online tool for Facebook, be unaware that they even set it up, and then you know, execute a will and give, you know, give access to someone else. So the online tool governs first. I believe a lot of uh, digital assets have this now. And then you can have a, a will where if there is no online tool or you don't fill the online tool out, the will then governs. Interesting. All right, we have a question for you already. A lot of those were oh, questions great. people sent in. Yeah, I asked, our, I asked our community to give me questions for you. So those were some of them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one of the questions is being sent to us right now um, is – what is the difference between a trust and an estate? That's an excellent question. So an estate refers to someone's assets after they die. Okay. Um, a trust could be set up during someone's life or it could be set up under their will. So a trust is really an agreement between the person who's creating or funding the trust and the trustee, that's the person that the creator is going to appoint to manage the assets, to manage those assets for someone they love, usually, who is called the beneficiary. So trust created during life or agreements. I ask you, Elizabeth, to you know, serve as trustee to manage these assets in accordance with the instructions in this agreement for the benefit of my future children, let's say. Right. Uh, you can also create a trust under a will. Okay. 
And what that would mean is when someone dies, there would be assets in their estate. That just means the assets that they owned at death. And the person who's appointed as the executor, or some states call it a personal representative of the estate, would then allocate the, the directed amount of money or assets to, to that trust. And then you, Elizabeth, if you were appointed as trustee in the example, would then manage the money in accordance with the terms of the will. So trusts and estates um, are different things. Uh, and it's, it, that's a great question to highlight those differences. All right. We got another one. How did you start with this? How did, how did you get interested in this? That's a good question, oh gosh, actually, because you know, you're so well-versed, you can hear it. And conversational. Thank you. thank you for that. You know, it was, uh, it was interesting. You know, I sort of went to law school kicking and screaming a little bit. I didn't really know what to do. And I, I figured, all right, I'll go to law school. And, you know, I was lucky. I, I do well in school. That's something I'll say is one of my strengths. And I got a, you know, a great job at a, at a big law firm, and I learned at that firm that really it was trust in estates was the area of practice that spoke to me because I felt like when I was you know, suing one drug company against another drug company over some patent or contract from years ago, I just didn't care. You know, there was a lot mm-hmm. of money at stake, but there was no feeling. There was no personal element. In trust in estates, I felt like I was actually helping people with their lives and the thing that, things that mattered most to them, their families and their property. And it also combined tax law, which I found interesting and crafty, and you know, I, who doesn't like saving money and, and knowing the best ways to do so? And so it was really the perfect fit for me. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You can, you can hear that in your voice, too. So, um, yeah, this helps people. It's very best ever you like. So I, I appreciate you being here uh, with no, us I'm, today. I'm so wanted, happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, while people are listen, listening online, I wanted to make sure that they had a way to contact you if they wanted to. Sometimes we save that for after the show, like at the end or whatever. But I want to make sure people can, because people click around while they're listening to us. So um, sure. it's blank com slash people. And then um, I have a link on the show, everybody, your name, and there's an R in the middle of it. So S-E-A-N hyphen R hyphen W-E-I-S-S-B-R-T. So there's a link, everybody, on the show. You can click on that if you're clicking around. Somebody just asked, how do I reach him? <laughs> so um, I'm guessing you, you're kind of like my husband. He is not on Facebook due to the profession he is in. Um, but I, I, I appreciate the ability to connect with you on LinkedIn. Is that a good place for people to connect with you? Yeah, or do we absolutely. need to go right through the that's law a, firm? That's a great place uh, for people to connect with me. And people are also welcome to email me um, at my law firm. You gave the, uh, the uh, web address for my personal page on the law firm's site. But um, my email address is also a great way uh, for anyone with questions to reach out, and that's uh, sysbart at blankrome.com. And uh, that's, that's accessible via, via the link on your website, Elizabeth, and, and also uh, with what you just gave. All right. Um, so, Sean, tell me about tax-exempt organizations a little bit, because um, I, I know a lot of people in our community um, either have them or want them um, to start, like a 501c3. Um, does, does 501c3 encompass everything, or are there other names for it, too? So I don't want to misspeak. 501c3s are, are the biggest type of charity, but there are definitely other types of charities. But 501c3s are, are the most special type because it's those types of charities that individuals can get a, an income tax deduction for giving to. And all the big charities that we hear about in the news are generally 501c3s. The big exception 
um, are political action organizations, those that are really lobbying uh, for changes in laws and whatnot, and those are actually 501c4s, so people are probably familiar with, with some of those as well. But, you know, those, you know, your churches and houses of worship and, you know, the Red Cross, universities, hospitals, those are all 501c3 soup kitchens. All the big things are 501c3s. All right. Um, what about a foundation? Is a, is a foundation different than a 501c3 or same thing? So that's a great question. A foundation is a subset of a 501c3. So this is kind of technical, but I'm going to try to make it simple. Sorry. So 501c3s, those are the charities that individuals can get an income tax deduction for giving money to. They are bifurcated into two classes, something called private foundations, and the other category is something called a public charity. The default rule when someone creates a charity is that they're going to be classified as a private foundation. The reason that default rule exists is that private foundations are subject to some pretty onerous rules that prevent them from doing some transactions that might you think that would be fine for a private foundation to do. I'll explain why they're restricted in a second, but let me first address how you become the other more preferential type of charity, which is a public charity. A public charity is generally an organization that receives a large base of donors. So, you know, where there's a Donate Now button on a website, people are giving, there's disaster relief, soup kitchens, people are volunteering, doing things. Those big charities are public charities. They meet an escape route by the amount of money and the amount of donors they receive um, to avoid that private foundation status. Private foundations, they generally are only receiving their money from a family or a few people, and therefore because the contributions are, are coming just from a family or a few people, the IRS doesn't feel like the public is policing them as much, and they subject them to more onerous rules to make sure that they're really going to do you know, good things for the public good if they're getting that tax deduction. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So, and so the other one is more of the the one that we're sort of the the public charity one is more the one that maybe a lot of us are sort of used to. Like if we're hitting the donate button, is that what you meant? Like yes. If, 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 a, you're, if okay. there's a website with the donate now button, it's almost certainly going to be a public charity. And something like the Gates Foundation, that's going to be a private foundation where the money is is coming from you know a single family or associated with a single family, and that foundation is just making grants that's generally going to be a private foundation. So where the public is involved, it's probably safe to assume that that organization is a public charity. And if, if it's just, you know, the name of a family, it's more likely going to be a private foundation. Perfect. All right. I hope that answers your questions that you guys are sending in. If it doesn't, it's super just send technical. them in. Yeah, no, super technical. I think <laughs> but a great I think question. Just, I think you just explained that to, it, to perfection, though. Totally understandable. Um, without going into like too much nitty gritty detail. So, um, but again, you know, that's the beauty of being able to contact you after the show. If we touch on Absolutely. a topic and people want to, you know, have that hour long explanation after or another day, they've got you. Um, so that that's perfect. What about um, what about other other financial things that we need to think about that maybe we're not like? Um, boy, there's so much like life insurance out there, you know. To, Ugh. How about that? Sure, no, life is, I think that's, (laughs) let me, yeah, let me talk about two. I think life insurance and 529 plans, 
These are things that really everyday people should be thinking about. Let's talk about life insurance first. There's you know, term life that lasts for a period of years and whole life that lasts for someone's life. Young people, if they purchase these policies when they're you know, younger, obviously, they, the, the premium payments are fairly low, and they can provide some peace of mind um, because if, you know, gosh, God forbid, uh, you know, someone passes away and they have a family to support, you know, knowing that their, their income stream would be replaced by buying life insurance um, can provide peace of mind. It can be a smart thing to do, and if you do it at a young age, the cost may not be prohibitive. Additionally, a lot of employers uh, may provide some, some amount of life insurance, so it's really good to ask at work and find out if there, there are any benefits that can be uh, obtained there. Additionally, uh, with life insurance, one more tip. For people that are concerned about paying estate tax when they die, if you transfer life insurance to an ir irrevocable trust, um, the death benefit is actually not subject uh, to estate tax, provided you live three years after the date you transfer it, or you have the trust um, set up first and then use the trust to acquire the life insurance policy. So that's a really good – it's one of the, the great tax shelters that still exists. Um, so <laughs> life insurance can be you know, good for you know, replacing income and also can be a good uh, thing to think about for uh, estate tax savings as well. Um, the second item I wanted to talk about are, are 529 plans. Those are college savings accounts or actually school savings accounts in general that people um, can use. Um, in some states, you can get a tax deduction for giving to the five, creating the 529 plan in your own state. Um, if every state has their own rules about the type of investments um, that can be in the 529 plan. But uh, mm -hmm. in all cases, if you create this account, um, you know, all dividends are not taxable. Capital gains are not taxable. So you're really avoiding a lot of tax um, that would happen with the trading within the account. And those savings can then be used uh, to pay for college. So when, when people have kids, setting up a 529 plan and giving you know, as much as possible every year can really go a long way because the growth of those accounts is all tax-free. Um, yeah, and I'd like to chime in there and say, yeah, um, with my parents of four boys, they're 18, 20, 22, and 24 now. So we have three in college at once. And um, everything you just said is spot on. How's that? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're the living example, Elizabeth. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, it's such a great thing to do. You know, in, you know tell family members who want to give something when, when your kids are born to yeah. put it in a 529 plan um, and, you know, really guarantee that there's money available um, for your children to, to go to college or, 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 or schooling beyond college if, if that's something that, that's in the, in the cards. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because the, the practical part of that makes sense, but the, the emotional part is often um, a little bit strange when you give somebody a contribution to their five, their 529 or whatever it is to their kids. They're, they're like, okay, so I needed toys, diapers, baby food. You know, the now is right there. and um, But, boy, the, the forward thinking of doing that is lovely. Because we had a lot, we said that when our kids were born, I was like, you know, this would be really great. Instead of having this, we'd rather have this. And um, that thinking sort of, I don't know how to say it right. You can interject, inter, interrupt me here, but it, it sort of paid off in a way because they're in college and they've used that money. Um, does that? Yeah, I'm sure they're very, very rambly, thankful sorry. for it. So it's, you know, it's great to buy toys for kids uh, and it's great to do 529 plans. I mean, obviously, 
you know, we want to, I think the purpose of, of our time together is really to help people maximize their money and, and, and get the most value out of it. And so this can be something that, that people can consider, especially around the holiday times, as maybe another way uh, of giving um, if, if, if they're able to do so. We had grandparents who gave our two older boys bonds. Like, uh, does that make sense? Yeah, um, absolutely. And what do you think bonds about that? Are another, another, well, those are another great thing to give because um, if they're municipal bonds um, issued by governments you know, within the United States, they can be tax-exempt. And so the income from the bond um, can all be exempt from income tax. So if you think about it, if you can get a 4% rate of return on a bond that's tax-free, um, you'd have to probably get you know, 6% or more uh, of a rate of return on something that's taxable. And so really any time that someone's investing, they want to not only be thinking about the rate of return, but also the, the tax implications of the rate of return, right? Because if I told you you yeah. can get a 6% rate of return on a bond that's tax exempt or a 6% rate of return on stock, or let's say a 7% rate of return on stock, you'd probably almost always be better with that lower rate of return on the bond. So it's really important in investing not just to think about um, the rate of return, but the after-tax or tax-affected rate of return. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's a line here in your bio that said he's co-author of the upcoming law school textbook on subchapter J of the Internal Revenue Code. And I'm hearing you keep mentioning taxes and it seems like they go hand in hand with trusts, estates, tax exempt organizations, and so forth. Um, is that an area of interest of yours as well, or is it an area of interest that is just part of the whole thing? It's it's absolutely an area of interest of mine, and it's really critical to the practice of trust and estates law and exempt organizations law. Um, you know, beyond just giving away your property in a will, um, all of these other issues, trust. Um, foundations, 529 plans, growth of assets, they all come with, um, with tax issues. And in trust and estates, there's a couple big tax issues that are in play. First is gift and estate tax. So both the federal government and some states impose a tax on, on the assets of your estate when you die. They're varying thresholds. Um, so currently, the, for federal purposes, every U.S. person – um, can die with $11.4 million of wealth before they'll pay a dollar of estate tax. That's obviously a very, very large number, and only a fraction of a percent of people who die every year are subject to estate tax, but that's only federal estate tax. Different states also have their own state estate taxes, and those are imposed in many cases at, at much lower numbers. So, and those taxes hit hit many more people, and the tax rates can be, you know, north of 10% in in certain states. Um, so that's one level of tax that people have to be concerned about. Additionally, if you have created a trust, there can be an income tax on the assets in the trust. I mean, if you think about it, if I create a trust and I put some Apple stock in that trust, the Apple stock is going to pay a dividend. And the IRS is certainly not going to say that just because I put it in a trust, they don't want to collect their tax on that dividend income or the income right. from any asset in a trust. And so there's actually an entire body of law about how trusts are subject to income tax, just like we have a system of taxation for corporations, 
we have a whole system of taxation for trusts. And it's in, just to summarize it, the idea is generally that either the trust pays the tax or the beneficiary pays the tax. And the way you determine it is the trust computes its taxable income for the year. And if it makes a distribution of property to a beneficiary, the trust gets a deduction equal to the amount of the distribution and the beneficiary then pays the tax yeah. on that distribution. So it's, we call it a quasi-conduit regime. And that's actually the subject of the book that um, I co-authored. It's a law school textbook on this subject. It's a course I teach at uh, NYU Law School. And um, it's really probably one of the most boring books uh, ever written because this is such an <laughs> intricate, you know, technical okay. subject. You did it, um, obviously, I'm passionate about it. And, you know, it's, it's of, of course, of super importance um, if you have a trust. But, it, you know, if you're uh, a reader who likes <laughs> to read romance novels, I'm not sure that I could recommend it. But it certainly would, you know, impart some practical knowledge. Um, for those <laughs> interested in the subject, and it's a, it, the book is fantastic. I, I co co-wrote it with um, four other um, law school professors who are terrific, and um, uh, it is um, you know for for the subject matter wonderfully <laughs> written and and helpful. And yeah. it, but you know it's not going to tell you um, you know the, a, a, a story that might well it might help put you to sleep. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Late night reading. So drink drink uh, read it with a cup of coffee. You know, it, it's funny too because I, um, I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm thinking about um, the younger generation as well, and sort of like this in my head. And I don't know if this makes sense or not, but in my head, you, this show and Norm Champ's show kind of go hand in hand. Like if if somebody 2024 20, or whatever listens to the show we just did with Norm Champ, they've got a pretty good set of skills right there that they're going to learn from him and his book on how to save and do, you know, do all these things to be financially fit in, in your twenties and thirties and so forth. And then this show sort of comes, you know, do you know what this show is trying to teach you at that age? My, my, what a wonderful set of, you know, tools and resources you have to start learning this at such a young age. Yes. No. Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely. You know, it's so important you know, when we're young and, you know, we're just, you know, so caught up with everything going on in our lives and the families and getting married and, you know, our careers. And But if you can just spend a few minutes thinking about sort of the best practices, you can really maximize and get a lot of value out there um, because some of the techniques that we talked about with the life insurance um, are, are, or appointing guardians are really things that young people need to be thinking about. Yeah, and it's not stuff they're teaching. Like you don't sit through this class in high school, or maybe even no. college, unless you're in law school. So you, you know, it's it's safe to say you could hit age 25 and not know about 401ks or life insurance or you know, just some of these things. Yes. Right, and you know, if you think about it, even 25 is is young. But if mm -hmm. if you think about a 25 year old who can even put away a few thousand dollars. And I know that can be a big chunk of, of someone's paycheck at that age, but if they can do it, um, you know, in a 401k um, every year, by the time they're, let's say 35 and now they're married or they're married with kids, that, that the growth on that money is all tax-free and it, it can be a tremendous uh, savings and can be very, mm -hmm. very helpful. I mean, I think that, you know, people who, if, if we really are trying to be smart, we want to forecast, right. And look at to what our lives financially 
will look at, will look like when we're retired, whether that's 60, 70, 80. And to be able to, to enjoy our lives, then we've got to um, save, right? Yeah. Because otherwise we're left relying on the government, and that may or may not um, pan out the way you want. Um, so certainly the government has provided tax incentives with 401ks, with 529 plans to, to do the savings. And if you can do just a little bit, at a young age, um, you know, you will see the growth and that should probably inspire you to keep doing it so that by the time yeah. you're ready to retire, you can, you can really, you know, w- do whatever it is you want to do, be a ski bum, be a beach bum, um, start your own <laughs> charity. Um, you yeah. know, the world, the world can be your oyster. Yeah. Our, our 24 year old, actually, we had a long, long chat with him to kind of decide what he was going to do. And um, he ended up getting this really great job for performance food group and decided to live here at home for a year and put money away in his 401k in savings and so forth. And it's been really interesting and cool to see his 401k grow just in the year that he's been here at home. It's a great foundation. I I just was like, why don't you do that instead of just spending all that money on rent and all this stuff. And it's, um, it's been quite a lesson to learn how to how to set yourself up a little bit better financially at age 24 than struggling so much if you can. Right, that's <laughs> there's a lot of such a good lesson, and and it, it's so smart of you as a parent to encourage him to do that. And you know, when when he's at his retirement age, I bet he'll smile and look yeah. back at that year. He probably had a great time um, living with you. Um, and, but, but, you know, smile and look at what, what that, what those few thousand dollars he was able to save are now worth multiples of that. So very, very smart. And the government gives us big, big tax incentives to contribute to these retirement accounts. And so it's, it's the most important thing uh, for people to do. Yeah. All right. So yeah, he's having a blast living with his parents. <laughs> not, no, it's okay. You know, it's all, it, it's, you know, it's, it's not that hard. It's like, you know, keep your room clean and no, it's not really that bad. Yeah, but you know, um, I will say this is a, one cool. more thing to add on the retirement accounts. And this is a great message for young people because young people might yeah. feel like, Oh gosh, like, you know, I know this is a smart thing to do, but what if I need the money? I want to save for this. A first time home point. purchase is something you can withdraw uh, from a retirement account without penalties. So not that I suggest people do it. It's always best to leave the money in the account. But if that's a concern that young people have, um, just know that the, those those withdrawals are penalty free. No, that's great. That's great information because it's you know it's it's stressful out there. Things I think things have changed. There's more, in my opinion anyway. And feel free to disagree. But there's just a lot of student loan debt, or we're seeing kids on our insurance plans longer. Um, our cell phone plans longer. <laughs> um, you know, just a variety of things seem like they've changed. No? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and... you know, the, the cost of college is increasing while salaries don't go up yeah. as much. So, um, you know, it's, and, you know, social security accounts, you know, who, you know, there's obviously a lot of literature out there about, you know, what, uh, what, what will be left when, you know, the current generation who's graduating college will reach that age. And so the burden is on us, um, yeah. whether it's me as a lawyer to educate clients, you through your show and, and parents who are listening and young people who are also listening to be smart and, um, and, and make sure they're preparing so that their whole life um, will be wonderful. They don't have yeah, to worry. It's, it'd be nice. Um, so let's, 
let's shift gears here a little bit because um, we just came off of Giving Tuesday. And some people, surprisingly, some people might not know exactly what that is. I mean, if you're not on social media heavily, hashtag Giving Tuesday might be a, a concept you haven't heard of. Um, not so sure about that entirely, but I, I know some people are like, what What does that mean exactly? And um, maybe you can take that and kind of run with it because it's been going on for a while, but it's it felt like this year it was really prevalent. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, Giving Tuesday is sort of in the tradition of Black Friday followed by Cyber Monday followed by Giving Tuesday where all these great opportunities – for people to, um, you know, shop at a discount on Black Friday and Cyber Monday exists, that we now have Giving Tuesday. It's been around for a good number of years where we encourage people, maybe because they save some money on, the, on those holiday gifts, to be philanthropic. Um, and it, it happens, I think, at the perfect time because the end of the year is really a great mm-hmm. time to think about philanthropy because we know or we have a good idea of how much money we've made, how much we're going to make, and we know how much we might be able to give away for the year. And we can really start feeling the benefit of the tax deduction that we can obtain um, for giving money away uh, to charity. And so Giving Tuesday is the day after Cyber Monday. It's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. I know at the Mentor BKB Foundation, we did a big push. I, I sit on mm-hmm. the board of, of that charity. Uh, we sponsor um, the United States team in a, in a culinary competition. Um, mm-hmm. But that charity, along with other charities, you know, I see it out there, you know, they're trying to raise money for their cause, hoping that, it, you know, it falls at the perfect time of the year where people saved a little bit of money on their on those big holiday purchases they wanted to make. They know what, what their bounty will be for the year, and they, um, they, they can start thinking about whether they want to make a, a contribution and get a tax benefit um, on their return that they'll file um, by the following April. Is that matched usually? Like, I know I didn't I, – I can't – just because of um, my husband's position and so forth, I can't donate like that, especially to like political organizations and so forth without it all being reported. However, um, I noticed Amazon was doing things like, if you know, did you see that at all? I don't know if you were on Amazon. You know, I, I, my wife is always on Amazon, okay. but uh, yeah. so I'll have to ask her later. <laughs> but, yeah. But you know, I noticed I, people I didn't are matching on Amazon, it. But a lot of employers will match. You know, okay. I think a lot of companies will allow people to make a charitable contribution and match that contribution. So, um, you know, there might be opportunities within in big employers to even maximize that more. I know that um, sometimes at UJA, that's another charity that, I, that I'm involved with, we sometimes mm-hmm. will have big donors also um, you know, match um, new contributions. So, and these opportunities are probably more likely to arise at Giving Tuesday because the world is thinking more, at least Americans are thinking more, about charitable giving yeah. at that time. Is it better to give like a, a cash donation to a charity or is it better to drop off like items? So, it's probably neutral. In, well, that's a really great question. Let me backtrack. It may be neutral. Cash is always going to generate a tax deduction. Um, the interesting thing is it may actually be better to gift something like appreciated securities to a nonprofit. I know you're asking me about items, and I'll talk about items too, but appreciated securities like stock that I bought for $10, it's now worth $5,000. 
-hmm. If I sell that stock, I'm going to have to pay capital gains tax on $4,900. But if I give that stock to a charity, I can get an income tax deduction of $5,000, and I'll never have to realize that $4,900 of capital gains tax. So actually, when you're thinking about what you might want to give, especially if you don't have um, some cash on hand, if you have some assets that have a big capital gain in them, you can actually forget about ever having to pay tax and give that to charity. And if you think about my example, if someone mm -hmm. sold that stock for $5,000 and had capital gains tax on $4,900, you know, depending on their income for the year and the state in which they live because they're state income taxes, um, the, you know, the tax obligation on that could be a third of it. So the government is encouraging you um, to, to give to charity in that way too. So it, it might be beneficial to give appreciated securities to charity. Now, if you give things and items like art or food, you can generally get a tax deduction equal to the value of, of those items if you give it to charity, if the items given are for a related use. So if you think about it, if I am going to give soccer balls to a hospital, that might not be a related use. Right, yeah. But if I'm going to give um, food to a food pantry, that would be a related use. And I think the IRS's goal there is to make sure that people are not just freely disposing of things to a charity just to get an income tax deduction if the charity has no way of actually using it for its, um, for its you know, related exempt purposes. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in those about, cases, to get the full value, you've got to make sure it's for the exempt purpose. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes um, charities have lists also of things that you can buy and drop off. I find that very helpful. Very helpful. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you get a receipt from the charity, you can, you can you know, donate. Uh, you can deduct um, some amount for, from your taxes. So it's a good thing to do. Yeah. What about when um, someone passes away and they want to um, – benefit a charity? Do they have to um, do those kinds of gifts in their will? Like, is that something so that's set up? Best, yeah, this is such a great question. The, actually, the best way to benefit a charity at death is through your retirement account. Okay, and I'm going to give a, a really interesting tip here, and I'll explain why it relates to charitable giving. When someone dies, okay, the basis in the assets that they own are adjusted upwards to fair market value. Let me explain what okay, I mean wait, by Okay, wait, say that again. Yeah, I didn't understand that. So when say someone dies, the basis in the assets that they own, their tax basis, and I'm going to explain what yeah. that means in a second, is adjusted upward to fair market value with an exception. But let me explain what I mean by basis. I buy my house for $100,000. When I die, my house is worth $500,000. If I were to have sold my house before death, I would have a capital gain of $400,000. Okay, that mm -hmm. may or may not be subject to tax based on other rules in the Internal Revenue Code. But for this example, let's just say that would be taxable. Okay, when I die, okay, death actually adjusts basis, basis being the $100,000 that I paid for it to fair market value. So my beneficiary, okay, say I give it to my future son, okay, at death, my son would now have a basis in my house equal to the fair market value of the property at the time of my death, meaning that if he sold the house, he would have no capital gains tax. So right. essentially, when someone dies, their tax basis, the cost they paid for something, 
okay, is adjusted to fair market value at death. I'll give one more example because it's so important. I buy Apple stock for $1,000. Let's say it's worth a million dollars at my death. If my beneficiary were to sell it, if this rule did not apply, they would have an enormous capital gains tax. So death adjusts this basis upwards to eliminate capital gains tax when assets are sold after someone dies, with one exception, assets in a retirement account. We spent some time already talking about how people get these income tax deductions for giving to retirement accounts. So one exception to this rule that beneficiaries don't have to pay capital gains tax on assets that they sell shortly after someone dies is assets in a retirement account. Because the assets in that retirement account, the rule is they're going to be taxable at ordinary income rates to the beneficiary that receives them. So if someone wants to give to charity at death, they're better off giving assets from the retirement account because the assets in those retirement accounts would otherwise be taxable to an individual beneficiary. If they gave an asset that wouldn't be taxable for income tax purposes to an individual beneficiary at their death, then the, benefit, the individual beneficiary would still be paying tax on the retirement accounts. And so you can avoid that by actually giving to charity through your retirement account instead of um, other assets that would otherwise not have to bear an income tax burden when sold. I know that right. was really technical, so let me no. know if there are any follow-up questions on that because it's, it's so important. Yeah, no, that's very important. And I think people, even if you have to replay that a few times to understand it, make sure you do, because that was, that's really key advice right there um, for people trying to, you know, learn all this stuff or, or implement, you know, take an action and, and do these things. So, and again, and, they've got your contact also, information. Yeah, for sure. But also I want to add that this rule applies to all people, whether they're, whether they have that 11.4 million that, yeah. that would subject them to a state tax or not. This income tax rule applies to people no matter what their level of wealth is. So very, very important. This, this is something that, that really speaks for everyone. Yeah. Um, what about the person who dies and says, okay, I'm going to leave, you know, all hundred million dollars to the, you know, the cat shelter. Where is, you know, okay. can, yeah, I don't know. It's a very can, lucky group of cats. Yeah, isn't it? Um, and a very, you know, sarcastic example. But where did that get set up? Did that get set up in their will? Um, oh, sure. And can so, you do that? Yes, you absolutely can. So someone can say that at my death, I want someone to set up a charity, okay, and then that the money, all of the assets in my estate should then go to that charity. So that direction would be the same as if an individual during their life decided to set up a charity. And if that person came in to me and said, look, I really am passionate about cats. I want all of my money to go to a cat charity um, at my death, and they don't have a cat charity in mind, I would tell them, well, why don't we set it up during your life? That way you can have some control over it. You can make sure it would operate the way you want. And then at your death, we can fund it with all the assets in your estate. But if someone didn't do that, they could leave a direction in their will for their executor to create a cat charity after they die and direct that all of their assets uh, be distributed to that cat charity. And I, I can tell you, I have a few estates that are very, very big, 50 million, 100 million, where I've seen that, especially for people who are single, who don't have kids. Oftentimes, they want to benefit almost exclusively charities. Got it. Can I create some drama for a second? So oh, please. Let's <laughs> let's say we got a hundred million dollars going to the cat charity and we have 
five kids. And the kids are like, wait, what? $100 million went to the cat charity? Mom or dad wasn't in their right frame of mind. Well, that's definitely what those kids are going to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard to con- yeah, so when someone dies – um, the individual people who would have a right to inherit from that person if they died without a will have the right to object to the, the bequests and the provisions of, of that person's will. Okay? So in your great example where $100 million, all the assets of this estate are going to a cat charity and the person is survived by five children, those, those five children have a right at law to come forward and say – my parent who did this was not in the right state of mind. We should throw out the will. Or it would be tough to say in the case of a cat charity, but imagine an example where $100 million went to a mistress or um, some unknown companion, right, right. Um, who the kids have never heard about. They might say that that, that mystery person um, exerted some undue influence or duress. Um, you know, in those cases where there's so much money at stake – Depending on the strength of the children's claim, you know, there's usually some sort of nuisance settlement at the very least that we see. Um, but you know, if um, mom or dad you know, had capacity and executed their wills in accordance with the requirements under, under state law, um, and you know, they, they weren't sick, they weren't mentally handicapped at the time, it's difficult to challenge someone's, someone's will. Um, yeah. There have to be really, really clear grounds about a lack of capacity or some undue influence. And, you know, when someone's healthy and well, it, it's it's difficult for people to challenge that, but that right does exist at law. Yeah. No, okay. That that helps a lot. Just to just kind of make sense of some of it and create a little drama, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, of course. It seems like it can be prone to drama, at least on TV it is, you know, and in the news sometimes and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I, so. I will say you cannot do that to a spouse, though. Um, under the law, of, I believe, of every state, a, you cannot fully disinherit a spouse. Um, depending on state law, your spouse is entitled to at least one-third, or in some states, it's one-half of your assets. So in, if you were married and you gave all of your wealth in your will to a cat charity, your spouse would have a right under state law to take either that one-third or one-half. Laws vary state by state, but th- those are generally the numbers. Yeah. The kids are yeah. out of luck. Seems like you've seen it all at this point. Oh yeah, I mean we have these cases. We have these cases all the time. I've never seen it actually with a parent giving all their money to a cat charity, but yeah, I, I, I definitely have seen some fun. some other strange situations. Yeah. I, I love cats, but not you know probably not that much. Um, I'm allergic to cats, know. so I probably would never give money to a cat charity. But no okay. offense to yeah. all the cat lovers the out cat there. Cat owners, yeah, we we love you, cat yeah. owners. We're just messing around. <laughs> um, all right, so. We have five minutes left, believe it or not. That's been an hour. Um, I have three questions. Maybe pick one. One is about walking through the life cycle of a person and the ways that they can be financially savvy. But I kind of want to save that and have you come back on. Could we do another show? Okay, we'll do that. About that. Oh, I would. I'm honored. I would love that. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, because that's epic and very helpful. Like that would be a show I wish somebody I I could have listened to when I was 20. Please. I mean, yeah, that let's would do be... that. We'll, we'll, okay. that, would be, that would be amazing, definitely. Okay. This, the next one is we hear that you're giving the – oh, this is cool. You're giving the opening lecture to the New York State Bar Association in January in Manhattan. Okay. That's yeah. pretty neat. 
tell me about that and when so that is yeah, and what you're really going to talk about. Yeah. So it's at the um, end of January. I think it's the last Wednesday in January. And um, I'm involved in the Trust and Estates Committee, and our annual meeting is that day. And I'm going to be giving the, uh, the first lecture of the day on digital assets. So it's actually on the laws that we were speaking about um, at the beginning of the show about who can access your social media and email accounts and how you can provide this level of access in a will or power of attorney and make sure that your loved ones either have or don't have access. And let's talk – we talked about granting access already – but there are some duplicitous people out there, and let's say someone is married, right, but has you know a girlfriend or boyfriend on the side, and they don't want their spouse to ever know about that. Um, they might not want their spouse to be able to access their email after death. So these right. digital asset rules are important because if, you're, if you don't pay attention, you might inadvertently be granting access um, to your spouse or children to learn about things that you don't want. So it's very interesting right. in practice we, when we have people who come in to do their estate planning documents, I always say, you know, do you want access to email and, and social media accounts? And the, it's about 60-40, 60% of people, absolutely 40% of people are, thank God you asked me, I would never want that. So it's, um, it's, it's an interesting, interesting area of yeah. law, and that's what I'm going to be talking about um, at the state bar. Awesome. Yeah, I I wouldn't have ever thought about that. My passcodes are pretty known in this household. So it's like, eh, whatever. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I worry about that sometimes. I'm like, you know, if I get hit by a bus, keep best ever you going. Here's the codes, <laughs> you know, this interesting. Yeah, it's, it's um, actually like these digital codes and, you know, it ha- it, cryptocurrency yeah, a lot is a big them. issue with it too, with these like keys and everything. It's all mm-hmm. a digital asset issue. Yeah. All right. You got one more here. We're going to get two out of the three. The other one's a whole show. Um, here's one. What happens to somebody's airline miles? We're going to close on what happens to your airline miles when you die. You got two minutes and 30 seconds. Go. All right. So this is a this is a cool question, because if you think about it, people can sign up for these credit cards and they do not get taxed on these major, you know, 50,000, 100,000 point bonuses. And that's because there's a Supreme Court case, I believe, that says that these airline miles, okay, are not the property of the person who has them, but are actually the property of the airline, okay, which really? actually means that the airline, yeah, the airlines can change the rules. They can say, you know, a 50,000-point redemption is now 100,000 points. The, the huh. silver lining of it for individuals is when you get these um, when you get these big bonuses, they're generally not taxable income because um, you can take the position that they're not actually your property. But because they're not your property, they're not actually transferable at death unless the airline or loyalty program would allow you to transfer them. So you have to check with the individual rules, um, individual plans to determine the rules. But my best advice is that people should keep you know, a, a chart that lists their account numbers and their passwords yeah. because you know, the day someone dies, Delta is not necessarily going to find out um, – that they're dead, and, and you know you could use that person's account um, if you, you know, wanted yeah, to whatever, yeah. proceed that yeah, way. That, um, but yeah. generally, um, your airline miles die with you. Huh. Interesting. We're going to close. They're not transferable under a will. Yeah, the live show is going to click off, guys, and then we're going to go into record mode. So it, if you're listening live, it might sharply cut off. But all we're doing is closing the show at this point just to let you know um but there'll be contact information and so forth at the end that's that is really interesting because i'm seeing on the airline miles that you can actually go into your account and gift them you can donate them 
I never saw that before when I, um, like way, way, way back when, when I used to fly like a hundred and some miles, thousand miles a year. Um, but even when you get them, miles. there's usually a yeah. charge that the airline yeah. can impose, and that's because they're trying to make money on you, what they're saying, gifting them. But it's not just yeah. that you can always freely gift them. Um, you really have to check with the rules, and it, the issue is that those points belong to the airline or credit card company, and they can do what they want with them, um, and they can change the rules and everything. Um, but they are not transferable at death unless the airline or loyalty program says so, and most do not allow it. All right. What an hour. That was so much awesome information, Sean. Thank you. Well, I, for loved, being with I us. loved being with you for this hour. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. Yeah. Um, and I will put up, rather than rattle off all the links again, everybody, I'm going to put up links with the show. Sean, if you look at the show and there's other links that you want me to put up there, also just let me know. I've got a little bit more room where I can put your email up there or your LinkedIn or whatever. Just let me know. And we'll um, do, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. And Give Sky a big hug for me. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, I certainly Sky. will. I certainly <laughs> so will. Thank you so much for having here. me, and thank you, Sky, for setting this up. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for happy being holidays. with us, Sean. Yes, happy holidays. Yes. Come back soon, and we'll do that whole Definitely. take the lifestyle. lifestyle Look forward person. to it. Yeah, awesome. All right. So that was Sean, everybody. Wow, what a great show and what great information. I hope this helps you. Be your best financially out there. It's one of the things we're going to be focusing on in 2020 is our financial well-being. So we're really trying to do shows like this with a few trusted experts that come back on Best Ever You so you get to know them, the way they speak, what they're talking about, and so forth. And so that's two shows now that are so helpful between Norm and Sean. So like I was saying, I think they really go together, and I hope this information very useful to you. So have a great Friday, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening to Best Ever You. We are syndicated from here. You can always listen to this show on replay here on Blog Talk Radio, but it does syndicate out onto iHeart, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and any place where you get your podcasts. So have a great day, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you so much again to Sean. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.